0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. So uh, tonight I'm incredibly pleased uh, to introduce uh, Jessica Ma, and she's currently the founder and CEO of Indonero. And... uh, I thought we'd uh, maybe just start this conversation uh, with, kind of, tell me about your company. In short, you get 30 seconds to kind of give us the short version of what do you do and why do we care. My
1: name's Jessica Ma. I run a company called Indonero, and we started it about 18 months ago. Um, I went to UC Berkeley and studied computer science, and while I was there, My best friend, Annie, and I were working on a past business, and we thought it's really difficult to manage our business finances. We never knew how much money we were making, what our margins were, how much we were spending, and I thought there has to be a better way than to use a complex accounting software like QuickBooks. So we started in DeNaro out of our dorm room, and we were Y Combinator funded, and then we raised a little money after that, and we're still going strong.
0: Great. So let's go back to your days in college, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur?
1: I was pretty sure I wanted to be an entrepreneur.
0: And why was that?
1: I started just building um, companies in college, like very small, um, just for fun, businesses. And I thought it'd be really cool to do this after college. Like I wouldn't have to work for anyone. Little did I know how wrong that was.
0: so you already had the bug. Did you have the bug before college? I
1: had the bug in elementary school.
0: <laughs> Did you have the lemonade stand?
1: <laughs> I actually traced drawings so they looked really professional and I sold them for 10, 20, 50 bucks.
0: And, and so are there originals we could get now <laughs> that uh, on eBay? That, oh god. <laughs> so you sold traced drawings for how much?
1: 10, 20 $50. in elementary school? In elementary school, I would take my portfolio of trace drawings and bring them to the playground and try to sell them to my classmates.
0: (laughs) Should we ask where they were getting the money from? Their parents. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, any other businesses when you were young?
1: Um, In middle school, I helped design and program websites for other people and um, just small stuff like that.
0: And were your parents encouraging or were they confused?
1: They were very encouraging. Mm -hmm. My mom... still runs her own business, and my dad's an engineer. So I got the engineer and entrepreneur side of my family. Right.
0: So by the time you got to college, you were kind of an experienced entrepreneur.
1: Not quite. I thought I was. Right. That's the problem. Yeah. And
0: So when you started the, uh, this idea in college, did you know you wanted it to be a company, or did you know it was just a good idea that you were solving a problem for yourself and your friends?
1: I thought it was a great problem to solve. And I didn't know if Indonero would turn into a real business, but at the worst case it'd be a fun project to build. We'd use it to help manage our own money for the future. And if we could sell it to other businesses, that would be even better.
0: Okay. So you were an undergrad in computer science. Yep. Right. And so you had this idea. Right? What did you do next? I mean did you code it and then went out and put up a sign that said you need money, or what did you do? <laughs> what did you do? Well was there an entrepreneurship club or how did you go from you know, I'm coding away and to, like, I think I want to start a company at Ray's Month.
1: We actually started building it to learn how to program in Ruby on Rails. Okay. Like, we studied computer science through our classes, but we didn't know how to do web development that well. And we didn't know how to... Um, to make something that we could sell to other people. So we thought, let's just build it, let's program it for fun.
0: So are you saying you didn't learn anything practical in the school up north? Is that...? (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: we learned um, like computer science fundamentals, but we didn't really know how to build a product and sell it to people and iterate on it quickly.
0: And so then what did you do? You built it and...?
1: Yeah, we built it. We started signing people up. And one thing we did early on, which I still think was really smart to do, was set up the sign-up page such that it would take in a credit card number and we would say we're charging 20 or $30 and see if people would enter in their credit card number. And we did this without even showing screenshots, without having a fully built product. And we just wanted to see if people would put in their credit card number, and we never charged them, but people put in their number, and that's when we thought, wow, we could build a real business out of this. Oh, and
0: how many people signed up to gave you Confidence? Five um, or 50 or five? Over 100. Really? Yeah. Wow. OK, everybody. Um, now you know the first secret, set up that web page. Right? <laughs> and then what did you do?
1: Um, after that, we decided instead of getting internships that summer, why don't we build this full time for the entire summer? So we started looking for money to fund our, our living situation. And And had you
0: graduated? Not yet. Okay.
1: So this was actually um, the end of my junior year at Berkeley, and we found out about this cool VC program. Lightspeed Venture Partners uh, offers a grant to students studying engineering up to $36,000, and we applied for it with our idea of Indonero, and we got the money, and we decided to go forward with that.
0: And so what did you have to do for this uh, internship program?
1: It was pretty simple. We just had to fill out um, a few-page application saying what Indonero is and why we're passionate about it and why we're qualified to actually build it. And we just waited and we got the money. And um, the money paid for our rent. It paid for our server costs. And that was really great.
0: And so that was your summer. You were starting to code the product even more. Yeah. Under this internship.
1: Mm-hmm. What happened next? After that, we thought why don't we drop out of college and do this (laughs) full-time?
0: We're gonna edit this part out for um, the University crowd. Well,
1: I didn't drop out.
0: Uh, Say that again.
1: I I told my parents I was going to drop out. They were petrified. And ultimately, I got connected with a family friend who um, was one of the early people at Rackspace. And he told me that he too was considering dropping out when he was starting his company. But he was convinced by another family friend not to do that. Right. And the reason being is, even if Indonero is a great idea, which it isn't that great, it's gonna be there for many years, and there's nothing more invaluable than to finish college.
0: Can you say that last part <laughs> again?
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm not just saying that because okay. I'm here. I truly believe that. I really believe that, and I thought I could just learn a lot in that last year of college, have a lot of fun. And when I finished, I would come back and proceed with my company.
0: So you had the summer internship from Whitespeed. You went back to Berkeley for your senior year. I went back for
1: college. And then what? And virtually no work got done that last year. We were just really focused on school, having fun, having that genuine college experience. And then we thought, why don't we actually do this full time for a job? And so we applied to Y Combinator. We applied to Techstars. And
0: and just for everybody else, Y Combinator, Techstars is
1: what? Y Combinator and Techstars are early stage accelerator programs. They give you a little money to work on your company. And they give you a lot of connections and help in just building a startup.
0: And so you applied. What happened?
1: We put in our applications. And it was pretty straightforward. We, We got in. And was there an interview? There was an interview. What was it like? Uh, it was really laid back and straightforward. Like, we were really nervous about it and we, like, put, up, we put together this list of uh, at least 60 questions on what they might ask us. They asked us none of them. And what ended did you, up, What
0: did you think they were going to ask?
1: I thought they'd ask, like, so why this market? Like, what's your total addressable like, revenue per year? And like, all this, these other questions that I thought real investors would ask. But they just cared about whether or not we spent the time to build a product whether or not we were passionate about it, and whether or not uh, we were able to get people to put in their credit card number for it.
0: <laughs> and
1: I think that's what they were most impressed by.
0: And how did they know you were passionate? What did you, what did you say?
1: Well, we told them the real story, that we built, the pro- uh, we built the business because we had a problem ourselves, and we just wanted to solve that. And okay, cool. like no person in their right mind goes into the accounting business and says, I'm going to build accounting software. Like, that's just insane. So, um, so people like that.
0: All right. And so what was Y Combinator like? What did you guys do?
1: A y Combinator was a lot of fun. I actually really miss it. Um, like the day of our graduation, we just took our moving truck and moved down to Mountain View. And every Tuesday night, there was a dinner. So we'd meet a lot of other entrepreneurs. And um, it was just like going through college all over again, but over the course of a summer.
0: So what did you do in between the Tuesday night dinners? We
1: would just program a lot. Right. We'd program, we'd talk to customers. I would actually leave my living room office um, to do usability testing with customers. So every Friday I'd just line up a bunch of customers back to back and tell them to sign up for Indonero if they hadn't already and just watch them use the product. And that was the smartest thing we did.
0: So uh, we'll get back to who the customers were, but more about why comedy. How long was the program?
1: It was for three months. Great.
0: And then you graduate.
1: Yeah, we graduated. And? And they have a demo day at the end, which means they bring together a lot of investors, and you try to pitch them, and you try to raise money. That's assuming that you actually want to raise any money. And that helped us a lot. That helped us find um, find their million dollars in funding afterwards.
0: So, whoa, you got a million dollars in funding?
1: It doesn't last that long. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, wait a minute. No, you didn't answer for it. You got a million dollars in funding? Uh-huh. Uh, from that Y Combinator demo day? Yeah. Okay. Now let's, let's get interesting. Sure. So So tell me about from college to Y Combinator, what was your idea of, just, just up to the Y Combinator demo day, what was your idea of the product and customers? What, what were those two ideas from your dorm room to the end of demo day? Did it change or was it the same or what did you learn?
1: Yeah, there was a lot of back and forth, actually, from, from the day we decided we wanted to solve this problem. We talked to a lot of business owners and asked them what were they using and what do they need solved. And we thought we were going to build a real accounting program. Like we thought we had to learn, like how to take the CPA exam, and and just clone QuickBooks and make it easier. But it ended up that no business owner really wanted that, and most business owners weren't using the incumbent in the space. Who was? Who is Intuit's QuickBooks product?
0: So you thought you were building QuickBooks on the web? Yeah,
1: that's that's what we thought. Mm-hmm. And but if very few business owners actually use QuickBooks, then how could we do that?
0: So what were they putting their credit card number in for?
1: Well, they wanted a product that would uh, displace their Excel spreadsheet, actually.
0: So most of them were just using Excel for their books. Yeah. Interesting. And so that was your that was your day up to demo day in, in thinking that that's what you were doing.
1: Yeah. We, we thought we were building a an accounting product, and what right. were we wrong. All right, we'll get
0: to, the, <laughs> we'll get to the, the fun part in a second, but this is a great story. So wait a minute, how old were you when you got a million dollars? I was 20. Great, I would have been in Brazil with a million dollars. But you instead thought the best use was to work 24-7 for that million dollars. Yeah. So tell us what happened when you were 20 and you got a million dollars. What did you do next?
1: We sat on it for about a month. We thought, you know, we have a million dollars, let's not do anything stupid to spend it all away. And of course, we've since spent it all away. And we, we started hiring people. So how did you know what to do? Well, when we set out to raise the money, we thought we have to hire people with this money. And we've got to find a way to grow faster.
0: And did you raise the money from one investor or a bunch? Or how did it work?
1: We raised it from a bunch of people. and. And just like all the other decisions we made, we consulted a bunch of people. We got very conflicting advice. And some people said you have to just just raise money from one or two VCs and call it the day. And then others said raise money from a lot of angel investors, you'll get more breadth in advice and expertise. And we chose the latter approach.
0: Okay, so first question. You chose one, in hindsight, right decision or wrong?
1: I'm happy with it. Okay, why? Um, Because we did get a, a, a wide breadth in expertise. And some angel investors who I thought would be super valuable ended up not being valuable, but others who I wouldn't have let in had I raised a small, smaller VC round um, ended up being the most helpful people for the business.
0: Cool. Okay. So you got the million dollars. You got some helpful investors. Uh-huh. Uh, you start hiring people. What were those people supposed to be doing?
1: They were supposed to be programming and building product.
0: Okay. And building product for who?
1: building product for the customer, and a huge issue here was, um, engineers, as I'm sure all of us know, just really like building elegant code, and refactoring a lot, and making it really fast, and and this was a, a huge debate and problem within my own company. We, I always wanted to just build lots of features for the customers, and, and a few of my engineers just wanted to make a really beautiful code base, and, that's just not what customers want.
0: And so, what did you find out, and how did you find out what customers want?
1: We got out of the building as as your book told us to do, and.
0: <laughs> if I was smart, I'd have book here, Four Steps to the Epiphany, <laughs> available on Amazon.com. But it's no, a great book, but I won't say that. No, <laughs>
1: it was one of. It was one of the only books I read that first summer when we started the company. I read through Eric Reese's blog. He's another great entrepreneur. And I read Lean th-
0: Startup by Eric Reese, worth buying. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I read through Four Steps uh, to the Fifth and and that was actually our, our biggest concern, because my co-founder and I, like, we had this great CS background, but we didn't really know how to build useful products that, that made money. So we decided to set up a very strict schedule for ourselves. Every Friday, we would get out of the building and watch people use the product. And even if there were still more features we wanted to build before we saw people use it, we found out that each customer led to a completely different set of insights that we wouldn't have gotten from past customers. And we couldn't just do it for 10 or 20 or 30 people. We had to survey dozens and dozens and dozens of customers to really figure out what we're going to build. Wow.
0: And so what did you learn? What was the – I mean, this sounds perfect, right? I mean, there, nothing could go wrong.
1: Well, I mean, you find out that a bunch of the features you built, um, they're not using. You find um. out that you wasted your time on, on just thinking about um, a product roadmap that doesn't make sense. So, like, one thing you learned early on was not to plan three or six months in advance because by doing these customer surveys, we – we found out that they urgently needed XYZ feature that we just didn't have in our plan. So we had to to be really flexible, and and now we only plan like two or three weeks out.
0: So isn't that short-term vision kind of in conflict of having a long-term vision for the company? I
1: I don't think they necessarily are. How so? Like we have a long-term, very high-level, broad vision. We want to help every business owner better manage and improve their finances. And whether that means going down the path of building accounting software or replacing bookkeepers and accountants or whatever, um, that's just a high-level vision. But the low level of how to get there is, is the hard part.
0: And, and did that cause any conflict with engineering of who wanted to build this perfect code?
1: Yeah, it's, it's really tough because what customers want isn't necessarily what you or your engineering team wants to build. Like some of these features are really, really really unsexy, like financial statements and stuff. I think they're awesome. But like, it, they're not necessarily that exciting.
0: Interesting. So let me just ask, you're 20 years old. You're a million dollars hiring people, finding out about customers. Sounds awesome. But had you ever hired people before? And
1: No, I never hired anyone before.
0: And so how did you do this? I mean, what kind of people were you looking for? And how did you hire them? And what did you find out?
1: Well, I haven't always hired that well. Like When I was in college, I always read about entrepreneurs saying, only hire A players. Sure,
0: that's what you did, right? Only hired A players. Well,
1: I, so I thought. But when you're a first-time entrepreneur, you don't really know who an A player is.
0: Don't they come with a sign?
1: <laughs> you think they do. Right. Or you, you interview them, and you're, you think, wow, like they got perfect uh, grades in college, and they're super smart. They aced all their questions. So A
0: players were their grades.
1: Well, they're really smart, right. but doesn't mean they're a perfect fit for
0: your company. Why not? Um, you mean you don't just hire for intelligence?
1: M- well, I, back then I only did.
0: Ah, wasn't that the Google model? <laughs>
1: well, I, I really thought that hiring for intelligence was the most important thing, but it's really the other non-tangible things.
0: Well, tell me what you learned.
1: Like. Um, whether or not they could meet deadlines, whether or not they could build a product with a high-level goal in mind, whether or not they could go out and survey the customers themselves, whether or not they could build a product without requiring a full spec that you're given in an engineering assignment in college. Wow. And these things you don't necessarily learn in college.
0: And so if you were interviewing people today, would you know how to ask those questions?
1: I wouldn't necessarily ask questions to figure that out. How would would you figure it out? a lot of these things you just have to try. Uh You have to bring them in for a few days and just watch them in the battlefield.
0: Mm -hmm. So did you make any hiring mistakes?
1: I made quite a few.
0: And how do you fix your mistakes?
1: (laughs) You recognize them, you accept them, and you um, try to part ways with the person who was a mistake.
0: So you never hired people, and so that meant you had never fired people either.
1: Right, and (laughs) actually, (laughs) I remember, like a few months after we had raised our million dollars, one angel investor asked me if I had ever fired anyone before. And I proudly told him, no, I never have had to. And he said, well, you shouldn't be smiling because you probably hired someone wrong and you just haven't realized it yet. And that really scared, that really scared me.
0: Right. And so you've now done that.
1: Right. <laughs> like I feel like, if you're a first-time entrepreneur, instead of just trying to only make A-player hires, maybe it's better to think about hiring in terms of trying and then firing if you realize that you made a mistake. Right. Because that's just inevitable. And, and you can't really learn who's a good fit until you try lots of people.
0: So it sounds like you fix your mistakes quickly yeah. I have. Right, it's costly not to do that. It's very
1: costly. Well, all the mistakes I made have cost us at least half our funding.
0: Well, well, it's glad you're still in business. Sorry, you're. (laughs) (laughs) That was that was half my funding too. (laughs) So, but but Jessica, when you started, there's another piece of this story that I think is kind of interesting. You happen to get a lot of press. First of all, why was that? What was it like, and how did you deal with it, and what did you learn?
1: Well, getting a lot of press is a lot of fun. It's
0: really good for the <laughs> ego, but when, no. and why did why did you get all that press? Do you think?
1: Well, we had a an interesting story. Mm-hmm. Like we were like twenty and a uh, twenty and a nineteen year old building a startup to help business owners, and we were fresh out of Y Combinator, and we'd raised million dollars, and it sounds really cool. But after we got a lot of this press, we realized that. Maybe half of it didn't really convert into signups.
0: So, but the press felt good. Why did you care about signups? It was about you.
1: I thought so, and then I got your phone call. Uh, <laughs> Steve called me after this huge wave of press and said, "Jess, like, you have to really think about what you're doing to yourself, and um, and really make sure that when you're you're getting press, it's actually leading to to money, to business results, because." It takes a lot of time to go out and do speaking engagements and talk to reporters. And if it's just about boosting your ego, it's just not a great use of time.
0: It feels good for a while, doesn't it? It
1: does. And then, and then over time, you had a lot of friends saying, how's the dinero? Oh, it's probably doing great. I saw you in Inc. Magazine or Fast Company. But it really doesn't feel great because deep down inside, you know how hard it is to build your company. And you know that you're not successful yet. So you just feel like a con artist in a way. So did you feel that way for a while? I still feel that way. <laughs> how come? <laughs> because people think you're successful when you're you're still struggling.
0: Okay. And so this brings us back to a, a, a funny conundrum. When you were in college and you were thinking about entrepreneurship and what did you think? I mean, what did, how did you think it worked versus what you what were the two biggest surprises about how the real world worked as an entrepreneur versus what you thought as a college student?
1: I didn't realize how hard it'd be. Like I, I always read about the success stories. Okay. Like all the books you get on Amazon are from entrepreneurs who, who made it. And you just assume you're, you're going to launch your product, get on TechCrunch, and then you're going to see a hockey stick in growth, and then raise a million dollars, and then be rich, and yeah. then buy a Tesla. It's
0: so I wish you did the million-dollar part, right?
1: Yeah, well, I, I thought that life would be great. Right. And it, it's really, really difficult. And I thought a startup would be a lot of fun because when you hear about your friends joining startups, it's all, it's all exciting. But when you're running it yourself, the level of stress you have is just incredible.
0: So tell us about the stress. We're a 20-year-old being stressed. I'm, I'm really interested.
1: It feels <coughs> worse than college.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and why? What, what are you responsible for that makes you stressed?
1: Well, you're responsible for your staff. You're responsible for meeting payroll. You're responsible for your customers and not um, screwing that up. You're responsible for your investors. And then, on top of that, you have your own career to worry about and your own ego and... And your parents and and it's far more than just me taking home a salary,
0: so you thought you'd get this million dollars and things would go swimmingly well, and you'd look like Facebook at the end of year too, right I did yeah, <laughs> all right, honest and and it didn't happen, right I, I mean, was
1: really, really cocky yeah i I was on top of the world, and I thought. I thought I'd mastered it all, and I was so wrong.
0: And and so when did reality set in? What didn't happen that you thought, or when did you start going, "Uh uh-oh?
1: I think reality set in when that investor I talked about asked me if I'd ever fired anyone before. And after that, I I went through each of my staff members, and I, I really thought, is everyone pulling their weight? Is everyone an A player? And if not, like, what did I do wrong or what are they doing wrong or how could we fix that? And I talked that over with my co-founder. We sat down and we, we really thought about our hiring practices. And we thought, you know, we're not moving nearly as fast as we should have been. We're not moving at the pace that we planned to. We weren't meeting our internal goals. And, and that just felt awful.
0: Yeah, because then you had to fix it.
1: Yeah, you have to fix it like the first person we tried to let go that was just terrible because if if i if i had to just let them go that that wouldn't be so hard to do but we had a lot of resistance from our other staff because everyone in a small startup is close friends to each other and they all like this person so i had to explain to everyone why we were letting them go and then why they weren't at risk themselves of being of being let go what?
0: Uh, and did you have any help doing this, or did you have to figure it out yourself?
1: Well, you could get advice from investors, right. but ultimately you have to do it yourself, right. and you have to learn the mistakes yourself.
0: And so the the first level of reality was figuring out that you needed to change staff, and and then yeah. what else? How about revenue and customers and product? What what happened when reality met the road there?
1: Well, so with the hiring and firing, that was just. Just giving the surface, and then it got way worse after that. Episode. Oh wow!
0: And why are you up here? Why? <laughs> tell us, tell us the story. I think it's great.
1: Yeah. Well, after that happened, we started. Um, we, we had set goals for ourselves for how many users we'd have, for how much revenue we'd be making, and and the numbers seem impressive, but a lot of them are just vanity metrics. Like they sound really good to TechCrunch. And to Inc. magazine, but they're not, they don't translate into business success.
0: What's an example of a vanity metric?
1: So for example, Inanaro could say it's tracking tens of millions of transactions and billions of dollars of business assets, which is all true. Okay. But how many of these users are active and paying money and how much money are they paying? And how loyal are they? And are we solving real problems for them? And and that's that's where we really had to
0: and you were tracking those real numbers as well.
1: Well, I tracked the real numbers mm-hmm. too. And and like they were not as great as I wanted them to be.
0: Right. And so was that something you knew how to fix or was it just kind of like you were stuck for a while?
1: Well, we were I think we were so unhappy during that that time period because we kind of assumed that we'd be successful. Mm-hmm. Like we had raised expectations so high for ourselves that when, when reality came to us, we had no choice but to feel bad about it. Right.
0: So how long did you guys feel bad?
1: Well, my co-founder and I went through this six-month bout of depression. We were just really angry at the world and, and we, were, we were just really upset.
0: And what happened?
1: and like we made personnel changes we cut a lot of our costs like we had a really nice office we got rid of that remember that
0: i do remember I got that of conversation of <laughs> so we what have. did you learn for just for everybody else what did you learn about fancy offices
1: well i actually read your essay about it before i got that fancy yeah, office and,
0: and you still did it and i still did it <laughs> but what did you learn
1: well i learned that you just feel really scrappy and it, it's a lot more exciting to, to feel poor and to feel like the underdog and to set expectations low for yourself. Because when we had that nice office, um, it wasn't just ourselves. who felt content, but guests would come in and think, wow, Indonero must be doing well. You have a nice office. You got a hot tub. It's really
0: cool. <laughs> <laughs> but it made you feel kind of too content, too, didn't it?
1: Well... I actually felt cool about it for about a month, and then, and then I started feeling like a con artist after that. I felt like I was wasting my investors' money and... Check. <laughs> I feel really bad about that.
0: Good. So what would your advice be on offices, by the way? I really think this is an interesting I would, uh, I would keep my
1: office in an apartment for as long as possible. So today our office is an apartment down the hall from my apartment. Cool, and it feels amazing. Because? Because um, it's cheaper. It's um, everyone's in a small room together, so you're you really feel like you're in it together, and um, and you have a kitchen, shower. It's convenient. <laughs> you're just more productive. No
0: hot tub, though. Huh? No hot tub. <laughs> right, and so what? Are, what did you start learning about customers and product? Uh, how does it compare to your original idea of uh, what you were building and for who?
1: Um. So I, I, I started to realize over time that we wouldn't just get an instant realization and build a product around that and for everything to be successful. When you're we starting the company, I would tell my co-founder, Andy, hey Andy, after a month we'll have our product out and we're going to be successful. Like, this is it. And we would launch the product and it didn't really help that much. A month later, all right Andy, this time it's it. Like, we, we figured out what customers want. We're going to be making lots of money now. And we did that like many, many times, and that never came. And then my co-founder, Andy, would say, Jess, I don't think it's, it's just going to happen like that. And it's just going to be iterative and long and slow. And we'll, we'll learn new things along the way, but we're not just going to have this, this overnight realization of what customers want.
0: And you think that's how it's played out now, that you kind of learned over time?
1: Well, it took us a long time to figure that out.
0: Right. Interesting. In fact, you mentioned something that I want to go back to, which is launch. Oh. And Did you do a, a, a launch early on?
1: Yeah, we, we launched really early. Like, we wanted to be the first company out of our white Combinator batch to launch on TechCrunch because we'd feel good about ourselves. And we did, and it felt great, but the product was just not there yet. Like People would sign up, and they'd complain about bugs and problems, and they'd fall off and I wish we had waited longer.
0: Say that last part again. <laughs> I
1: wish we'd waited longer to launch. Why? And we didn't have to publicly launch to get user feedback.
0: I thought that's what you're supposed to do. We
1: could have just talked to our friends and early customers and had them use the product and, and just ace that for a longer period of time. But you wouldn't have
0: been part of the cool club.
1: You wouldn't have been, but I'd rather not lose your money than be cool.
0: That's an interesting lesson, isn't it? And could anybody have convinced you with that early on? Honestly.
1: Um, possibly, but I felt like there was just a lot of peer pressure to do otherwise. I think so. Like when you're surrounded by a bunch of other companies who are rushing to, to launch and, and your, your investors really want you to launch, you're just going to do it. Cool. Interesting. So you just have to figure out, like, what you want to do, and even if your investors tell you to do otherwise, you have to decide what's right for you. Well,
0: this is interesting, and we're going to come back to this. You mentioned a couple of times your co-founder. So first of all, yeah. how important is it, do you think, to have a co-founder? Because you've done this yourself.
1: No, and, not at all. Um, yeah. I think it's super important to have a co-founder, and I'm oh. so thankful I have one. And
0: why? What, what do you think you get from a co-founder? Is it just another pair of hands or eyes or something else, or what, what is it?
1: It's a real-time sanity check. So on all the decisions I make, um, my co-founder would often give a differing opinion. Like Mm -hmm. I'd say, oh, this guy's so cool. He graduated from a top CS school. We should totally hire him. And my co-founder would say, no, you don't want to hire him. Here's why. Or, Or I would just say a bunch of things, and he would just refute that. And I'd say, wow, thank God I have you.
0: And had you worked together before?
1: We had throughout college together
0: so you had a working relationship before you did the company and you knew each other yeah and um, how do you break ties
1: how do you divide
0: up no how do you break ties so he says one thing you say another how do you decide
1: well at first it was who who is more charismatic, and that was usually me. I would be like, I would just come up with a bunch of reasons and tell Andy why he's wrong. But over time, I tended to be more wrong than than he is.
0: So sounds like a marriage to me. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> Jeez. Well, now now we default to his decision. And you
0: still like each other?
1: Oh yeah, we actually got in closer yeah. because of it.
0: Interesting. And um, could you imagine? Um, having more co-founders or is two the right number for you what what do you feel like?
1: Two or three might might be right mm-hmm. four feels like it'd be a lot but it really depends on on the people you're working with mm-hmm. and with my co-founder Andy we're like we're best friends we, we live with each other mm-hmm. um, and it just feels right. Cool
0: and how about um, you mentioned advisors and uh, uh, as investors, because that's the way you funded the company. Yeah. Um, tell me about the type of advice you get. How often do you talk to them? Weekly, monthly, every year? I mean, different types, different times?
1: It really depends on the person. And before we took money from people, we actually would estimate how helpful we thought each one would be. <laughs> and uh, based on that, we would determine how hard we try to get them in. <laughs> And, um, and I remember you on our list, we thought, impossible to get, so maybe we shouldn't even try. But we're really happy to have you involved.
0: Took one coffee. That was it. I was easy. <laughs> um, and, and, and so what's the best advice you've gotten from other mentors or other advisors? What did, what did they tell you?
1: Um, I think the best help I get from advisors
0: mm-hmm.
1: is the emotional support. It's just knowing that they're there to help and they're not there to judge. And even if you make mistakes on their dime, they're accepting and they want you to learn. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And we realized that the best angel investors and advisors were those who had built their own company before. Um, So they were their own entrepreneur. They worked for themselves. And they didn't feel super strong about one opinion. They always gave you both sides to the story and trusted you to decide what was best. And and so I, I really look for that in an advisor. And, and now we only have maybe three or four who we speak with on a regular basis, maybe every few weeks. And then the rest are super busy running their own companies. Cool.
0: And so um, were they helpful in raising the next round of money, or did you do that by yourself?
1: We haven't raised Oh, so just, round of money. Oh, so you just
0: raised a million dollars?
1: Well, it was a little more, right. but we're still going on that million right, right. now.
0: Great. And do you ever think you're going to need more, or you're going to be done? Um,
1: well, when we raised a million, we thought, oh, this is way more than we need. Like we're totally going to be done on that. Okay. In fact, we had only uh, we only sought to raise 500, okay. and we thought that was enough.
0: So, what's the lesson in raising money here?
1: It goes by faster than you think, and mm-hmm. um, and it's it's always safer to raise more than to raise less
0: so if you could have raised in fact you probably could have raised more would should you have taken it?
1: absolutely yeah. I was offered um like over a million dollars more on incredible terms and and I should have taken every penny and
0: yeah, because
1: because um it would give us more time to to experiment to to iterate on the product It'd give us more time to make mistakes like of the million dollars we raised we, we had a plan and we thought we would Meet each of the items in this plan, but we didn't account for the fact that half that money would basically be spent on founder tuition, on just mistakes we made mm-hmm. and, and other problems.
0: So you think you just kind of underestimated the, the the amount of mistakes and naivete that you would burn cash for?
1: Yeah, I completely underestimated that.
0: And and you realize it's not just you. I did. <laughs> okay. You do now.
1: Well, now I do. Back then I thought I was not going to screw Make up. Make the
0: same mistakes. So l- let me just ask the uh, kind of two interesting questions. One is the, um, what are the things that people told you that you heard but didn't quite understand versus the second version of the question is <laughs> what did you hear and did understand and took their, that is, there's two classes of you got advice and you heard it and yeah but not us and then you did it anyway. Versus, gee, that was good advice and it saved us whatever. Am I making?
1: Yeah. I think that when you listen to advice that sounds rational, you don't don't just discard that advice because you disagree with it. You justify your circumstance. So, for example, your essay on not getting fancy offices, we looked at a bunch of offices that were super fancy and had a guy on the first floor who would open the door and make everyone check in and you know fancy like chandelier in the lobby and we're like all right like Steve told us not to get fancy offices so we're not doing any of this but the one with the hot tub didn't (laughs) really fit into that for (laughs) a while. so you don't really
0: I'm going to add a hot tub clause
1: (laughs) (laughs) you don't discard advice you just justify you somehow justify around it or with um, Eric Reese's opinion on not launching um, so early, right. we didn't discard it, but we justified not following it by thinking, well, it'll allow us to build up PR hype, which will allow us to raise money, which will help us be successful. But we, by launching too early, you kind of burn your only chance to, to get a lot of PR.
0: Right. But The heuristic there is you don't get the launch twice. Right,
1: right? you don't. Right.
0: And so these sound a lot like rationalizations.
1: Yeah, you just justify it. You're like, you just make make it work somehow.
0: And, and do you think being an entrepreneur now a second time, let's say you did another startup, would, would advice like that register more? Oh yeah. <laughs> because?
1: Because, I mean, I made the mistakes, and now it's it's kind of hard coded into my DNA not to repeat them again. Interesting.
0: Okay. And what what are some examples of advice you did take? that you think were were useful and
1: I think not settling on $500,000 like that was just so easy to come by back back when we raised and we had one very uh, great angel investor Kevin Hartz from Eventbrite he said take more money like this bubble is going down or whatever or maybe it will never go down but what's the harm in taking more money just in case Mm -hmm. so I followed that advice I took over a million and Although okay. I should have taken more, it's better than if I had just ignored it.
0: And any other good advice you got from others?
1: Yeah, um, on on like hiring and firing, mm-hmm. on measuring more than just intelligence, um, on um, just closing angel investors when we were raising money. Mm-hmm. So we got a lot of good advice that we followed. Okay,
0: good. So um, maybe we'll just um, kind of wrap up and then take questions. Sure. but. Uh, but for me, the most interesting thing is you started a company pretty young in school. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it would have been better if you would have worked for some other startup, at least for you in your case? Right. Or, or would you still have gone out and become CEO and founder, knowing what you know now, how hard and depressing and <laughs> miserable and whatever? What was your choice? Or what would you choose?
1: I'm really happy that I went down the route of entrepreneurship because if I'd gone, went out to get a job, I'd probably become a better engineer, but I wouldn't have learned about negotiating and hiring problems and dealing with the company budget and, and figuring out this investor, uh, how to deal with investors. And, and I wouldn't really appreciate how hard it was to start a company. So I might procrastinate starting a company if I had gotten a job. I'd say, oh, I could start a company in a few years and I'll, I'll do well and, and life will be great. And it's easy to say that when you're not running a company, but when you are running a company, you intimately understand how hard it is. And actually, when I was going through that six-month battle of depression with my co-founder, I remember asking him, like, should we have just gotten real jobs? Should we, should we have just returned all of our investor money and gone to work at Google or something? And, and that was when we really realized that we had to make the startup just fun for us to work in. What if Indonero never makes a profit? What if I can only make payroll and maybe make my investors a little money, or none at all, and just have fun with it? And, and now my focus is on enjoying myself, on learning, and I'm a lot happier now that, that I feel that way.
0: So you would do it again? Absolutely. Right. So with that... Um... thank you. Yeah. So let's, let's open it up for questions for uh, uh, anybody. And you want to pick? Why don't you, sure. why don't you pick? Hey, Jessica, during um, our research looking at your background, you, you hit on a really important area, which is looking at a room full of budding entrepreneurs. How do you, What advice can you give them from getting to the idea phase and crossing that chasm into a product phase? And you learned a lot of lessons. The product got out too early. Is it doing an executive summary? Photoshop, starting to code right away. I mean, what tips can you give from a cool idea to actually crossing that chasm? So the, so the question was, um, the short version is, um, what tips can you get or give from um, going from the idea into the execution?
1: In middle school, I'd come up with a bunch, bunch of ideas for businesses, but I never actually went through with any of them. And I'd put together a business plan or executive summary and and I put a lot of time into just planning out this operation, but none of them came through. So in college, when I was starting in an I thought, why not take a completely different approach? Why not start with what's the most fun thing to do that would get this in the hands of a potential customer? So instead of coding, we actually started with Photoshop. We put together mock-ups, and we brought them to potential customers, and we asked if they thought this would help them in any way and, and I felt that by going that route instead of doing the business plan or executive summary route, we'd just get closer to figuring out what people actually wanted because, I mean, a business plan, like if, we had, if I had to look at our first executive summary and compare that to what we have now, it's completely different. So you can't really proceed based on just a plan.
0: So no business plan survives first contact with customers?
1: No, never. All right, all right. Good.
0: Did that, did that answer your question? Very good. Great. Pick another one. You talk about your corporate culture. And when you first started out, did you intentionally try to build any aspects of corporate culture other than the hot tub culture you mentioned? <laughs> so, <Yeah>. the, so, <laughs> so the question was about corporate culture. Did you intentionally, when you started out, try to build a corporate culture, or was it, did it just happen?
1: We didn't intentionally think about culture, and that, that's probably a mistake. Like, you probably have to think a lot more about culture when you're starting off. But we built our company around friends, so we all knew each other, and we all had this common culture of feeling like we're in college, and we're building this for fun, and so, so it's pretty organic.
0: And so would you have, given what you knew now about hiring and firing, would you have built the friends college culture or would you have built a different culture?
1: I like the, the friends and collegial mm-hmm. culture, but...
0: Oh, the butt's important. What's yeah. the but? <laughs>
1: but um, I had a few experiences where I would hire a friend who was really smart but just not a great fit for the company and that would just really destroy our relationship. So I'm a lot more careful about that. And so
0: what's the culture today? How would you characterize? if I had to give it a label or you give it a label, what would you say your Indonero culture is now?
1: Uh, the culture right now is kind of like a clubhouse. Like, you know how in the basement of your parents' house, you set up a little tent and you you do stuff in there? That, that's what Indonero's like. Cool. Uh,
0: but, but with better employees. So it's, yeah. <laughs> Good. Jessica, you've spoken a lot about the benefits that you got from angel investors. Uh-huh. Can you talk about some of the negatives when you had to give up with angel the, the investors? Okay, so the, the question was that you spoke about the benefits of angel investors, but mm-hmm. what are some of the negatives and what do you give up uh, from having uh, angels instead of uh, venture capital?
1: Well, I, I'd actually prefer to compare raising money from angel investors against just bootstrapping it yourself. Um, VCs, it's it's obvious you, you lose a lot of control and a lot of equity. Angel investors, you lose equity, but not so much control. Um, some people say it's really difficult to manage investors. I think it's just not something you should worry about. Like Most of our angel investors, they're just so busy running their own company that they don't have time to worry about how well or poor we're doing. But comparing it to bootstrapping, I would feel a lot more comfortable if we were bootstrapped Um, and instead we had like great advisors because there is a lot of pressure to to grow the company to make sure it's not just a lifestyle business that you're happy with but one that will make a lot of money and um, and i haven't completely figured that out yet but based on the company we were trying to build i don't Know how we just bootstrap it in an easy way,
0: and did you get offered venture money?
1: We were offered a little venture money,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but we thought it'd just be smarter to take angel money.
0: And why? What were you, what was your thinking? Is it still the same?
1: We were scared about signaling risk if we went out to raise a VC round, but we had a venture capitalist invested in the company who didn't want to invest in the future, it would just make the company look bad. and no one would. On.
0: They didn't want to do a venture round. They wanted to do part of the angel round.
1: Well, we weren't raising a VC round. Okay. Like We were very adamant about just taking angel money.
0: And why was that? Why didn't you want VCs?
1: Because we didn't want to raise expectations for ourselves. We wanted to have the time and luxury of just figuring out who our customer was. And if we have a VC involved, we'd be forced to spend our money on not necessarily the right, the right problems. Mm -hmm. And I remember we talked about that when we first met. Back in um, the summer, we uh, worked on the company for the first time. I went to Steve asking about raising money. We had actually tried to raise money, and we couldn't raise money, and that was the big reason why we went back to school also. And, And what you said was that by raising money too early, you're likely to waste it on the wrong things. And I didn't really realize that until after we had wasted money on the wrong things. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Great. Next question. Um, so you, you talked about some hiring mistakes
1: that were made. Were these, like, full-time equity players, or were these
0: contractors? What kind of, what kind of hiring? Mis- what's the nature of these hiring mistakes? So, so the question is, uh, you talked about hiring mistakes. What was the nature? Were they full-time employees with equity, or were they just uh, contractors, or both, or...? Um...
1: All over the board. Contractors, interns, full-time employees with equity. Um, and and it was really hard in every case because there's pressure to move forward. There's pressure to to spend your investors' money to make the company grow faster. And by firing someone who isn't like top notch, you're cutting away a lot of productivity. And you want to move fast, but if you get rid of them, then oh, well, we're going to have to do a lot more work that we didn't want to do. But that always ended up being the wrong mentality. And, and so it's just better to, to fire as soon as we realized it wasn't a perfect fit.
0: So you learned that it was better to have an empty seat than a seat that wasn't fully productive?
1: Yeah. I yeah. mean, I don't need to have my weekends. Like, I'd rather have my sanity and just work more to make up for it than have only a half contributor.
0: And were you still able to hire after people knew you were actually capable of firing them?
1: Yeah, of course.
0: Yeah. And eventually, how did the rest of your organization deal with the fact that you were not going to accept half productivity?
1: Um, people really think about what they're contributing, and and everyone bounces back. Mm-hmm. Like even after a good friend leaves the company, you bounce back, and and I feel like you're you're almost stronger because there are fewer of you, and because you know that like you know that you are the right team.
0: Okay. Good. Next question.
1: Was it- was it difficult to, to
0: make your customers talk about the quality of the product? Uh, so the, the question was, was it difficult to uh, have your customers talk about the product and the quality of the product?
1: It's really easy to get people who love your product to talk about it. It's really, it's a lot harder to get the people who don't like it to, to talk to you about it because they'll use the product and they'll stop using it and you'll never hear from them again. So we set up a little survey box on our dashboard that asks if they'd recommend in a narrow to a friend. And it's simple, yes, I would, no, I think it needs more work. And we measure that every single week, and, and that's allowed us to get in touch with the people who wouldn't recommend us and probably wouldn't come back.
0: And so who did you learn the most from?
1: We learn more from people who, um, who find the product promising but have a lot of problems with it. The people who don't, find it useful at all, just aren't the right customer at all.
0: Interesting. And, and, and so how do you get a hold of the people who, the, that middle ground? How do you find them?
1: Well, through the survey right. and through customer service. Mm-hmm. So we get hundreds of customer service emails every single week. And a lot of them say, oh, I found out about you guys through so-and-so magazine, and I couldn't set up my account for X, Y, and Z reasons. And we'd get in touch with them, and we'd learn a lot just from customer service.
0: Right. So who talks to customers in your company?
1: We have one full-time staff exclusively working on customer service.
0: On customer service.
1: But he's not just customer service. He's not just answering support emails. It's a constant learning role.
0: Right. And how often do you talk to customers?
1: Um, pretty frequently. Like I'll talk to you at least a few a week. A few a week? Wow. Um, before, I would talk to like, like a lot more potential customers mm-hmm. and get them to be customers. Mm-hmm. But... Um,
0: it used to be called sales.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, but for us it was about usability testing and research. Right. But, um, but, yeah, it, customer service isn't just about service, it's about learning. Great. Right. Good. Next question. In the back.
0: Yeah. Um, so you said that you speak with dozens, lots of customers, um, and every customer is going to want something from the product, so they're all going to have different priorities associated with features what type of mechanism do you use or what process do you go through to find out and prioritize what features are going to go in the next iteration of your product? Also, can you talk <laughs> about an occurrence where a customer, a paying customer, a current customer, asks for a feature that you had to tell them they wouldn't receive and how did that go? So uh, there were two questions embedded uh, in, in there. One is, um, given that uh, you have a series of customers who want stuff from you. How do you prioritize the uh, customer requests? And two is when you had a uh, paying customer who asked for something, but it turned out uh, you couldn't get to their feature, uh, how did you deal with that? Was that...
1: So to your first question, um, I'd say the, the main process is get out of the building and actually watch them in person use the product. So we didn't have any fancy software or process. It was just email them and say, hey, um, I want to figure out how you're using a narrow and and how we can make it better. Can we meet up in person over coffee? And a lot of our customers are in San Francisco or in New York. And I live in New York, while my parents do, so I get the best of both. And that's always been the best way. The least successful learning we have is on the phone, actually. You can't watch them use the product. You can't watch them struggle. And that's just not as useful. Um, your second question um, was about paying customers who want a feature and we've had to turn them away, and we get that quite a bit. We have people who want us to build a feature that would make us too much like an accounting product all the time, and we just have to tell them, remind them that they signed up for Indonero because they wanted simplicity, and Indonero gives them that simplicity, and and we can't just build everything for them, but we found out that a lot of our customers do ask for valid features, and it's not that we won't build them, but it's that it'll take us three to six months to get around to it, and that's the more difficult scenario. But we found that most of them are pretty patient. They're willing to wait for us to, to catch up because they
0: believe in the company. So who's the product steering committee in, in the narrative?
1: Um well it's all of us like it's not really like we vote on features it's just we talk about it over dinner once a week Mm -hmm. We'll we'll take the company out to eat eat at a restaurant and we'll go over the problems that customers had and then based on that we'll just decide All right, that sounds interesting I'll I'll work on
0: that and was there ever a time so far that you've heard you know enough requests in a place you weren't uh, planning to go where all of a sudden it was clear uh, that you needed to make a shift in this area, or has that not happened yet?
1: Yeah, I'd say the biggest example of that is with building a mobile application. I never really felt strongly about going mobile because I felt that every web startup was just building an iOS or Android app because it was the cool thing to do. But a lot of our customers expect that and, and demand that, so so that kind of brought us onto a different course. Cool.
0: Let's take one last question. Um, is noticed, this the best question? <laughs> yeah, the best question in the room. Okay.
1: Have you noticed any similarities between your company culture, when your employees and the way they, they they interact, and your customers? If
0: they're you know whether they value the same things or whether a lot of your employees just can't relate to your customers. So does the company culture relate to your customers? That is, can they can they understand your customers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I actually meet a lot of entrepreneurs who say that their customers are completely different from who they are, and they're not very intelligent, or they, they ask for stupid features, and they just don't get it. But, but I'm really proud to say that our customer base is really smart, really tech-savvy, and they get it. And they're really fun to talk to, so...
0: That's, that's a great sign, Jessica, because when you start hating your customers, you're out of business. Uh, so, so with that, I want to thank you very much for a wonderful time uh, today. And thank, thank you. Thank you so
1: happy. much for having me.
0: You have been listening to the Draper fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program.